Courage to Hope with Tony LaGreca is a show supporting the fight for sobriety against substance abuse and changing the stigma that comes along with it. Tony has been helping families, friends, and loved ones discover recovery services as well as coping skills for over six years following the death of his own son to opioids. Join Tony and his guests each week as they reveal the courage to hope. Here's your host, Tony LaGreca. Thank you, Ben. And this is Tony LaGreca, and this is The Courage to Hope. And tonight we have on Marshall Lane and Billy Coleman. And <clears throat> Marshall's actually a, a, a second time around, and Billy is a newbie. So I uh, had Marshall on with Frank a little earlier in the, in the year, I think back in December. Uh, and the one thing, reason why we have him back is because um, that was the most viewed podcast we've ever had on WMEX out of the courage to hope. So <clears throat> we figured there's a lot of interest in what these gentlemen are doing. And it's their, their pro project is called from prison to prosperity. Is that correct, Marshall? Yeah, it's called prison to prosperity. Okay. Could you give us a little idea of what that is? So prison of prosperity, uh, it developed because, um, when I was networking through like a lot of the, like the recovery support and reentry support, um, networks, I realized there was no peer led like reentry support groups. They were all led by probation officers or law enforcement or healthcare professionals. So I just thought that was like kind of demeaning. You didn't, you know, like we just, we lose our autonomy. And then when we come back out in the world, we still get robbed of our autonomy. So uh, myself and uh, an, another LADAC, a uh, licensed alcohol and drug counselor, Tommy Ward, um, who's been doing it forever. We put together this group called Prison of Prosperity, and um, a bunch of men joined the group, and uh, the group did really well. And, um, you know, today a lot of these men have been really successful in their lives, and, like, we learned from each other and we grew. And, um, you know, we learned how to be more productive members of society. Very good. And, William, are you uh... – a uh, graduate of the program, I am. I am. So I'm still part of the program. Uh, I stay right. connected with Marshall as much as possible. Yeah. So, so um, we'll call you Billy, right? Yes. Um, Billy, what is what is your story? You didn't mention that you were in prison for quite a long time, and what? How did you end up there? So I ended up. So I was a, a drug addict um, at a started at an early age. I uh, started going going to prison when I was about 18 years old, did a few stints in the county jail, then went right to state prison, did two state prison sentences back to back, basically. I was home like 10 months in between, um, five years, uh, three years first, then five years. Was home for about 15 months and went to federal prison for 10 years. I was robbing banks, um, you know, just doing whatever I needed to do to get high, really. And, uh, you know, I came from, I come from South Boston. I, I grew up in the D Street projects, came from project, you know, had a, a pretty tough upbringing in and out of foster homes. Um, you know, a lot of bad role models and it led me down that path. So you're saying that if you weren't addicted to drugs, that you probably wouldn't have committed any crimes. Um, I mean, that's not a guarantee, but I feel inside that yes, if, if, if I didn't get addicted to drugs, then I, I probably would have never went to prison. Um, you know, I had a lot of good opportunities at a young age. I was involved. I don't know if you remember back in like 1997, there was like a rash of suicides in South Boston. 
And I got involved with a group called South Boston Survivors. And we were trying to bring awareness to teen suicide. A lot of my friends died that summer. And, uh, you know, I had a lot of good opportunities through that. I had gotten good jobs and, and you know, had things. And then I just ended up one night trying trying heroin. And uh, it was like the biggest mistake of my life. So you didn't get a prescription. You just attempt, tried heroin to see what it was like. Yeah, I actually it was a, actually a birthday party for me. It was my 18th birthday party. And uh, I walked into a room and a friend of mine had some there and I didn't even know what he was doing. I was drinking, you know, partying for my birthday. And uh, I asked him if I said, let me get some. Let me try that. And he wouldn't give it to me. He said, oh, you know, I don't want to be the I'm not going to be the first person that does this. I don't want to give it to you. He left the room. I tried it on my own. And uh, it was downhill from there. Wow. OK. If you mind me asking, when you robbed a bank, mm -hmm. you rob it with a gun? I did. So, yeah, in the, initially in the beginning, I was robbing banks. I was using notes. And uh, it, it evolved eventually into just going in with a gun. Oh, um, what's your anxiety level like when you're robbing a bank? I mean, just... um, <laughs> <we're>, oddly <laughs> enough, oddly enough, I had no anxiety when I did it. The very first time I did it, it was kind of like I had been doing it my whole life. It just, I don't know. It was weird. I had no anxiety at all. And how much cash did you get away with? Uh, different amounts, different times. I think the most I ever walked away with was uh, like 22000 And you wouldn't, did you, how fast did it take you to spend that? Very fast. So I was, so I was like, I'm a very generous person. And like I said, I grew up in the projects. Like I was taking care of like all the, the my little brother and sister's friends and buying them wardrobes, buying clothes. Like I was giving money to everyone and also, you know, spending money on drugs. I just had no, I have no, I had no value on money, which is probably why I'm broke right now. <laughs> yeah. So um, does, a, does the federal government think you owe them back the money that you stole from the bank? Do they, how does that yes. work? So I have, I have restitution to pay back right now for the banks that I, I was sentenced for. Uh, you know, they, I have to make payments on that like once a month. Okay. So that's, that still goes on till it's done. Right. Uh, well, as until my federal probation is up for sure, which is right now is, uh, is up in about 14 more months, unless the judge agrees with me to terminate it early, which I am in the process of writing a letter to my judge to try to get my probation terminated early. Okay. So how did the program that Marshall was involved with, how does that, how did that help you? What did they do for you when you came out of prison? Well, it was, it was amazing. I, I, I met Marshall actually, we were both doing uh, outreach work with the Mass Ave project. And that's how I met Marshall. He, he told me about prisons of prosperity. Um, you know, I went to one of their meetings and, and then I was involved with the program from then on. It was great being around other other guys that have gone through what I've gone through and, you know, came from the same places I came from and seeing them doing the right thing, like seeing them all work in the recovery field and, and, you know, reaching out and trying to help other addicts and other guys that are in and out of prison, figure out how to live out here and how to do the right thing. So that, that was huge for me. That was a great inspiration to see guys like Marshall and Tommy, you know, you know all these guys like just been doing this for a while and, and, and very successful at it. And I kind of just followed in their in their footsteps, and you know I, I lean on Marshall a lot for advice, and uh, 
yeah, it's been great. I mean, I got this job at Charles River Recovery. Like I started out as a as a recovery support specialist, which basically just work the floor and then do rounds and check on people. And then within five months, uh, five and a half months, they promoted me to case manager. Very good. Well, Marshall's a good guy to lean on. We we know about him from from our earlier conversation. You picked the he right is. guy. Yeah, yes. he is. He's a, he's a great guy. So, did you get sober in prison, or did you get sober after you went out? I did. So I got sober in prison. I got sober my my last three years uh, is when I stayed sober. Something just hit me one day, and uh, you know, I was in my cell looking out at the yard, and you know, the barbed wire and the fences and I just thought to myself, like, this is it. Like, if you're lucky enough, this is all you have to look forward to for the rest of your life. You know, if you're lucky enough to make it back here. And uh, I just didn't want it. I just didn't want it anymore. I I, I needed to do something different. And I made a, a decision that I was going to come home and do things very different than I normally did. And that I was going to worry about myself more so than, than everybody else and trying to fix everyone else's problems, which has always been my problem in the past. And um, And it worked. You know, this time I came, I came home and, you know, like I said, I put, I put all this stuff to work and I, I was kind of selfish and just worried about myself for a while, took care of me, reached out to the right people, put the, the right support group around me and things have been amazing. This last almost two years now that I've been home from federal prison, I mean, I, I, I've gone on, I've gone on vacation, I went on a cruise for the first time in my life, like I went on a plane for the first time in my life, you know, I'm living life you know, normally I'm doing things, enjoying things and able to remember things. And it's just, it's a very, very different life that I live right now. And I'm, I'm very grateful for it. Sounds exciting. Everything is new to you. So yes. I get absolutely. it. Yeah. I get it. You know? Um, and when you come out of prison, did they have a place for you to live? How did that, how did you get a place to stay? No. So I had, I went to actually, when I first came home, I went to a very bad situation. I went to live with my now ex-wife in Rhode Island, even though I knew it was, you know, a toxic relationship. It wasn't good. And exactly what I thought would happen happened and things blew up there. And uh, I left. They ended up sending me back to Massachusetts to a federal halfway house. I stayed there for about a month, got myself into a sober house and lived there for about three months. Met uh, my now fiance and uh, moved in with her girl that I've known since we were kids. I met her and we reconnected. I moved in with her and I now her and I now live in a house that we own. That you own, excellent. Yeah. Okay. So Marshall, tell me, um, when you see somebody like Billy to come in, I'm sure it's very rewarding for you to see somebody cross the hurdle and making such good progress. Yeah. Like, so with someone like Billy, like he already had that seed in his mind, like he had already been planned to do it. So, you know, like, it's just great to connect with people like Billy, people like Billy and Frank and a lot of these guys that coming out of prison, they have qualities that a lot of other people in society don't have. They have grit. They have, um, you know, they have different character um, traits and stuff, you know, like uh, resilience and things that they just don't understand, you know, like how, how to, how to um, utilize that in, in the furtherance of the, the, you know, like their, their own goals and, and improvement of their life. So um, yeah, when I met Billy, like I knew right away, I was like, Oh, this is a good kid. Um, and like, you know, I told him about the meeting and he was interested and, you know, and he started coming around, did the recovery coach thing that we did. 
um, and just began networking. We all worked with each other. We network out to see like what opportunities we can find for each other. Um, like, that's my thing. It's like, you know, it, it's, it's not the individual. It's just the connectivity is like, like what networks are they able to access? You know, uh, when people are stuck coming home from prison and they're just unable to access certain, you know, networks and resources and positive influences, uh, you know, like they get put in a, you know, in a, in a difficult situation because we got to survive, you know, we got to live. It's not easy. It's expensive to live out here. So, um, that's pretty much like where my specialties come in, I guess. And, and, and what, where I kind of see the opportunity. So I understand you're going to do a special project next year. Would you like to elaborate <laughs> on that special project? Uh, yeah, it's going to be this year. So I thought of it like a year ago um, when I started having like a lot of struggles networking in through like a lot of like the charitable organizations and nonprofit and social service um, networks. Um, I was pulling up a lot of 990s, the tax filings for nonprofits. I came across a whole, I want to use a bad word, a whole lot of, uh, a whole lot of corruption. Um, and it was frustrating. Like, what do I do? Like, I, you know what I mean? Am I going to report it? Like, this is, you know, I see like the money that's wasted and I see like the numbers and the statistics. Overdoses have gradually increased. People talking about heroin overdose when heroin doesn't exist anymore. It's fentanyl. So much misinformation. Um, a lot of like, you know, uh, nepotism, cronyism out there. Uh, and it just, it didn't sit right with me. So what I decided was this, is I decided that um, a good project would be for myself to just live completely homeless for a full year and experience, you know, like what it's like to live homeless in Massachusetts and then be able to access all the different um, social service networks to see which ones, you know, like are the most useful and to find out, you know, like which ones um, might be, you know, lacking in um, service and just be able to document everything. So like, that's going to be my project. It's going to be on multiple media platforms. I'm going to be doing a lot of interviews, a lot of lives. Uh, people will be able to um, interact. Um, people have told me I'm crazy. People are putting up bets. So how long it's going to be before I quit? <laughs> my yeah. mother's on one of them. So, uh, yeah, you know, like, it's going to be me. I'm going to have a bike. I'm going to have, like, a backpack, a tent, and, like, you know, I'm going to have a hammock and things. And I'm just going to, you know, stay in shelters, stay out in the woods, and I'm going to just travel around, interview people out in the street, right. politicians, right. cops, you know what I mean, and figure out what's going on. And I think I think I understand that, that you're you're like undercover if all of a sudden you're, you pull out your phone and you start interviewing somebody. Yeah, I'll tell people what I'm doing and I'm going to be honest and open and transparent and um, I'll let them know, you know, but I'll also let them know like it's a different take because I'm actually experiencing it. I'm, I'm coming from, you know, like and I guess it might some people that might not, you know, they, they might find that offensive, you know, because technically I don't have to be homeless. But uh, at the same time, I think meeting people at, at their level is really important. And um, I'm really hoping to get a better understanding and a better scope of where all this money is going for our social services, what's going on with addiction and mental health and homelessness in, in Massachusetts. And hopefully maybe find um, some ways that, you know, we can provide better service and help people be more successful, you know, because it, it, at the end of the day, it, it all lies on the individual. The individuals are the ones making the choices. Yeah. So is this going to be like streaming live with Marshall Lane, you know? all during the day or it's just going to be periodically could somebody go on and find your you know <clears throat> find your interview somewhere on 
on the um, in the stream someplace? Yeah, what I would say like right now is jump on my Facebook, Marshall Lane. Um, on Facebook, I have Marshall Lane 14 on Instagram. All those um, platforms are going to get utilized for this project. I'm going to probably do like a lot of recordings, like I'll record interviews and I'm just going to do like um, every day. I'll just dump all like the like the recordings, all the information will get dumped on the different platforms on a website as well. I might do a blogger's website. So if you're on my social medias, um, you can gain access to that. Marshall Lane on um, LinkedIn. Um, I'm going to use all those different platforms and then um, I'll have a Facebook group and uh, yeah. So all that information will get put out every day and I'll probably do like a live lives on YouTube every night and talk about my experiences and I'll be writing. I'm going to write every day. I'm going to write down, um, document all my experiences, my thoughts and my opinions and I'll let other people share and I'll share as much of, you know, different people's opinions and viewpoints and I'm sure people have negative things to say just as much as positive. So, and I'm going to be asking for donations too, because this is work. Like I'm going to be working. So like, hopefully people will oh, give yeah. donations oh, and yeah. gifts, you know? So it's Marsh. <clears throat> what is your Facebook page again? Um, Marshall Lane on Facebook. And it's just a picture of me with a hat. Um, just say Marshall Lane on Facebook and I can find you. Yeah. Or Marshall Lane 14, <clears throat> Marshall Lane 14 on Instagram. Okay. And when will you be starting this deal? I'm not going to give any definite dates right now, but I'm going to start like before the end of the year, it's going to start. So sometime between now and December. Sometime between pretty, now and December. So yeah, <laughs> pretty safe. And yeah, yeah. I'm going to send you all the information too, Tony. So you're going to get all of that stuff. It's all kind of, okay. Yeah. Cause contacts. we'd like to, we, I'm sure the listeners would find this quite interesting. And I'd, I'd like to do updates as we go along, you know, with my show so we can get an idea. So does that mean you're going to give up your job? You're going to give up the car you're sitting in today? Um, all of this yes. stuff or is this going to be so I in the backyard up, I, somewhere? I got two jobs, Tony. So um, I'm going to, I'm giving up two jobs, which equals about a hundred grand a year. So that's going. Um, the vehicles I'm going to, I'm putting up and uh, I'm not going to be, um, I'm only gonna use it. I'm only gonna use the vehicles every now and again. I'm good. Thank you. Seldomly. And then, um, so I'm gonna be using a bike mainly in public transportation. I'll be riding around on a bike, and uh, I'll be traveling around to the gateway cities. Like each city, I'm gonna try to access all the different resources, talk to the people in the street, talk to officials, and talk to you know like politicians and whoever else is involved in like the social services there and just kind of find out what's available and I'm going to be building out a spreadsheet of everything so that um, whoever is, you know, watching can have access and see, you know, like what my reviews are and like the things I access and what's helpful and what's not, what's useful. So it's all going to be documented. So you say gateway cities, do you mean around Boston or are you going out to Springfield and Pittsfield? And... Well, no. yeah. So I'm thinking like Boston isn't a gateway city, but it's got a, a huge population of like homeless and addicted population due to like mass and cast. So I'll probably go there, Pittsfield, Springfield, Lowell, Lawrence, like all the old mill cities, Lynn, um, Springfield, uh, yeah, like all those cities. <laughs> Holy Oak. Yeah. Okay. Very good. So William. Yes. Are you, are you at work today? I am. Okay. I can see you moving around a little bit. Yeah. I'm, tr yeah, I'm so, trying to get away from pockets of people. <laughs> okay. That's good. Um, yeah. So when you have your first opinion, 
you 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 like Marshall's plan? I I love it. I think it's great. I, this is the first time I've heard of this this plan. Uh, Marshall didn't even inform me of this, but I think it's an amazing idea. I agree. I think he has to stop shaving though, and starts to look a little gruffy. To, to yeah, he's definitely going to have to. He's definitely going to have to blend in. He's got a nice shirt on and everything. I think he's going to yeah. have to do yeah, some. Yeah, that's not going to. That's not going to work for the home. Do some work beating oh. himself up, you know. So yeah, that's that's great. Um, so, um, Billy, when you're <clears throat> dealing with with um, patients, do you tell them your story? You tell them so the good side I of do. where you're at today. I do sometimes. I don't. So I don't tell them my my entire story because I'm technically I'm not supposed to. But I yeah. personally think, and I've gotten this this feedback from the patients that. It is it's very inspiring to them to see somebody who's come from the same places they've come from and gone through the things they've gone through to be where I'm at right now. And it, it just shows them that if, if, if I can do this, you can do this. You know what I mean, it's just it's all about it's all about what you really want out of life. You know what I mean? You just you just got to make that decision and, and, and put in the work. Yeah. So, so tell me when you were going to get sober in prison. Did they offer you a rehab program, or did you have to go cold turkey? I did I cold turkey on my own. They had nothing available for you. No, so not, at that time they didn't. So I, they they actually started like right after I left. They started now. They give suboxone in the in the prisons now to help people when they come in, and uh, they didn't have none of those services when I was there. That all started right after I left. Yeah, I, I know another fellow who. He didn't rob banks, but he robbed drugstores. Mm -hmm. He just waited for the shipments of oxycodone and oxycontin to get delivered, and he'd rob yep. that. And, and that's all he'd take. He wouldn't take yep. any money. He wouldn't take anything but the bills. And um, he told me when he went to prison that <clears throat> he he basically had four months of being dope sick. Yeah. So when when you went cold turkey, were you dope sick for a period of time? And for those that don't know what dope sick is, it's the reaction you get when you're when you're on opioids and all of a sudden you you stop your body reacts in cold sweats and this guy described it as like having the flu times 10 it's yep. the worst worst experience of his life and yeah four, four months he was you know he lost 60 pounds he was a mess and um did you stay in the cell or did you go out in the yard how did you how did you pull it off so I, I stayed in the I stayed in my cell most days as much as I could. I tried to get out when I can and, and move around. Like the first first week or so, I would say I, I was in my cell pretty much in the bed, you know, twenty four seven. Like just didn't want to get out. It's it is it's a terrible feeling. It's one of it's one of the worst feelings that I've ever gone through being dope sick. And unfortunately, I've gone through it many many times. Yeah, now that's. I have my, my son was addicted as well. And I watched him go through it. And unfortunately, sorry, yeah, yes, unfortunately he would go back because he couldn't after two or three days, he was, he just couldn't handle it. You know? So yeah. you really have to have a strong, strong will to get it done. Yeah. You have to, you have say. to be mentally, you have to be mentally strong to do this. It, it, it takes a lot of, a lot of, mental strength to really get through this and, and fight those urges when you do have them, which you I have still any, you have. It's not, I'm not just, you know, I'm not all of a sudden just fixed and 
this is a work in progress. You know, I'm still, I'm still a broken person. I'm still trying to fix those pieces, you know, but I'm doing it. I'm taking it one day at a time and I'm fixing things one, you know, one, one problem at, at a time and trying to learn patience and just let things come to me instead of having that mentality. Like most addicts do, we just, we want everything now. We want, you know, I want, I want the car and I want the house and I want this. And I want, I want it all now because I'm sober now all of a sudden. And it just doesn't work that way. It's, you know, you got to put in a lot of work for this. But it, it can come. It's it's very, very possible. Anybody, oh, yeah. if, I, if guys like myself can do this, anybody can do this. It's just, you just got to really want it and you got to put in the work. Yeah, I can see that Marshall's come a long way. And how long have you been sober, Marshall? I've been, I've been off opiates because I was in federal prison for 11 years. So, and that was 2008. I stopped using, because I still... So probably, let's see, about 14 years off opiates. Um, so that's been, and I won't take an opiate for anything. Like even like I burnt my leg up. I, I burnt my leg up in a, uh, in a welding accident, in a metal fabrication um, accident real bad. And they tried to give me um, oxys for it. And I said, no, I said, don't give it to me. And the doc looked at me like I had six heads. And I said, listen, I'd rather, I'd rather the pain than go through the addiction. Like just let it, I'll just let it heal, man. Just, yeah, wow. I've, I've been wow. down that road myself since I, when I, when I met Frank, I was in the hospital, had, I had back surgery, major back surgery, and every different shift that the nurses came in, one nurse said, oh, you got to get on Tramadol, you got to get on Oxycontin, you can't handle this pain, we want you to, you know, have breakthrough pain, you know, and all this stuff, and I kept telling them, no, just bring me the Tylenol and some ice packs, and I'm okay. And they, they just kept driving it into me, you know, and I just, yeah. I said, you know, and it was four days of hell of just um, being in there with the, with the pain, but I knew I would make it through the time. Because I know my personality, I'm, I have a gambling addiction and I'm addicted to anything that would give me a rush, you know, so mm -hmm. I, I haven't taken it ever since my son died, I obviously I, I am motive, highly motivated never to do it, you know, and, and, um, just for the, I just don't want the drug companies to make any money off me. That's the second half of what, 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 what motivates me. You know, I just, just isn't happening. You know, somebody wants to take it, do their own thing. That's fine. And some people need it. Some people dying of cancer. They obviously should have it, but, but if you're planning on living for any length of time, I think it's, the answer is no. Do the do the other method. Do the Tylenol. Do the ibuprofen or whatever it takes. So that's the way I view it. And and um, Marshall, even though this is not on 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 television, people can't see you. Um, I would never in my life believe that you had ever had an issue because you you've come such a long way. You know, you look like the guy that must might be working at the uh, behind the behind the bars at the bank instead of the one in front, you know? So, uh, wouldn't you say so, Bill? Absolutely. He's so Absolutely. put together. He's so put together, at least. It, 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 we'll see how he is after he spends a year on the street. Yeah. So. <laughs> my, um, my old manager was, I, I, her and I talked about it, and she said that I'd regress back. She's like, you're going to regress back to being like kind of like an animal out there in the street. And I said, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. But it's like the, the whole goal is sober. It's. 366 days of sober uh, homelessness and um, 
the sober is important because like, I'm not using any substances. I'm completely sober. I'm experiencing everything on my own and it's 366 days cause it's a leap year. So, um, okay. yeah, I'm going to feel every bit of it, every bit of it. I'm going to experience it. I'm going to feel a lot of it. And like, there's a lot of recovery stuff that I want to discuss too, because like these whole, all these recovery, different recovery, um, supports and networks, um, they can be pretty dismissive of people sometimes and they can be critical. Like we get stigmatized from all sides. Like we like as being like people that have struggled with addictions and like working in addictions and knowing it from like the, the clinical and the, you know, like the professional end is it's not something that's very simple. So, you know, like I see people getting stigmatized from, you know, like recovery communities are getting stigmatized in the street, you know, not people with addictions, not every drug is going to send them back into like a whirlwind of like addictive behavior. Marijuana is legal now. So a lot of people catch flack because they had opioid addiction or an alcohol addiction and they use marijuana. So they get ousted, you know, like they get ostracized from these or criticized in these communities. Like I, I feel like, you know, we're, we're in an age now where there should be more acceptance of whatever people's pathways are, because you're right. These pharmaceutical companies, they're playing us all for dummies. And you got like, what is it? Like one out of every three people's on in America is on some form of prescribed, you know what I mean? Narc, well, if not narcotic, like, you know, it's close to narcotic medication, SSRIs, you, you name it. But it's, you know, uh, they're just making oh, yeah. a fortune. Oh, yeah. People are getting sicker. You know what I mean? Yeah, the big issue now is fentanyl. So the, yep. the one thing, if somebody's doing marijuana, they better be buying it from the the, the, the guy, not the guy on the street corner, but the, the state licensed facility, you know, because if you got to make, you know, if you don't know whether there's fentanyl laced into anything, I've seen so many people that have died by just doing other things. Like um, a friend of my, a friend of mine's, her sister died of, of an overdose four weeks ago. And um, she had, she was doing cocaine, something she'd done a lot. And this time it was laced with fentanyl and she immediately went, she went unconscious and they tried Narcan four times and it didn't work because it was just too powerful to, to kick it back. So that's what's pretty scary out there right now with the, with, with the fentanyl. And if it you it's a very scary. It's a very scary world out here right now. Like, like you said, you don't you don't know what you're getting anymore. Like the Narcan doesn't even work on people half the time because you know they, they everything's mixed in together. You don't know what. It's it's really it's terrible. It's I tell I tell all the patients here like you you're going out here to a very scary world. You have no idea what you're doing anymore. You know the guys think they're doing uppers and and they, they end up doing fentanyl. Like you said, one one time and and that's it. It's over. It's quick too. Within a minute or two, one pill can kill. That's the yeah. that's the other thing that people got to be aware of that. And so, Bill, what do you do in the recovery place? What is your what is your job, and how does it? How do you go about doing what you do every day? So I'm I'm a, I'm a case manager here, and what I do is I help people find aftercare for when they leave this treatment center, which is typically up to like thirty days. Um, I help them find halfway houses, sober houses, outpatient programs, you know, pretty much meeting them where they're at, whatever they need. And uh, that's, I mean, that's, that's pretty much, I know exactly what they need, offer suggestions if they don't know what they need. If some, some patients come in, it's the first time in treatment and they have no idea what they need or, or what they want. So I just kind of try to help ease that and help 
you know, ease them down that path and to make the right decisions, you know, for them to help set them up to be as successful as possible. I assume that halfway houses are all different and some are really top shelf and some are not. And you had, you get to, you get to go and investigate these halfway houses and get, you know, so I don't know. I don't get to go investigate, but I, you know, I know a lot about these halfway houses and the sober houses just from, from working in this field for the, you know, for the last, uh, a little over a year now and being in this lifestyle my entire life you know i have a lot of a lot of dealings with all these different programs <clears throat> so i kind of vet them out i, I kind of have an idea of like what houses are really not that good and what houses are and i try to avoid you know the houses because it's sad but true that there are houses out there you know sober houses and half houses that are being ran by corrupt people and and they're not they're not in it for the right reasons they're in it to make a buck <clears throat> they're not in it to save somebody's life and for me myself personally that's exactly why i'm in this field like i wouldn't do anything else with my life this is what i want to do i want to help fellow addicts fellow convicts to be successful to live life on this side you know yeah. and it's just it, it's something very very that i take very personal and uh yeah i don't the money doesn't matter to me i don't care about the money i don't care about anything but the people and, and Billy, how old are you? I will be 45 this year. 45. Marshall, you're about the same age? I'm uh, I'm 41 right now. Okay. A little younger. Okay. Um, yeah, it's, you, you must think, each one of you must think every day that you're, it's unbelievable that you're, that you're alive. And um, I, I, I worked a few films with a couple of guys from South Boston. Um, Billy, did you know Michael Yeba? Who's that? Michael Yeba. Yes, I know Michael Yeba. I've known Michael my whole life. Him, his yeah. older brother and my uncle are actually like really good friends. Oh, okay. Well, I'm, I was one of the guys that helped him, uh, sponsor to do one of his movies. And I'm in, I'm in, oh. I'm in, th I'm actually in three movies that he's in that all about addiction. He's in Circle of Addiction, and he's in um, he's in if if only he was the director, and, right? And he did a movie that never got we never finished it, but um, he interviewed a lot of people from South Boston, and it, it sure is a tough place to survive. And I'm, you must wake up every morning saying it's wonderful to see the sun. And, oh, it's it's, it's amazing! It's amazing. I definitely every yeah. I say. You know, I walk my dog every day. I take my dog for a walk in the neighborhood. I live in Braintree now. And uh, I just walk around the neighborhood. And I look around just walking my dog. And I, and I stop every day just to think to myself, like, this is unbelievable. Like, that I'm living, like, I, I'm in this nice neighborhood. I got, you know, I have a house, safe house to live in. You know, walk my dog, just living life like a normal person. And, you know, I've, di I've died five times in my life. Flatline, five times. You know, so for me to be standing here, it's it is amazing and it's i don't take it for granted you know I, I every day i try to i try to be the best person that i can be and i try to help as many people as possible you know it's i feel for someone to die five times you know and, and make it back uh there has to be a reason that i'm here and i and i feel this this is my reason this is the reason my reason is to be here oh, yeah. and be that that segue for other guys to get to this side yeah, a walking miracle is what you are. You know, that's what Thank I say. You. Like, 
little things like humid and hot weather probably don't bother you at least bit, you know, because you're breathing. That's <laughs> that's what matters, right? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Marshall's got a big smile on his face. He's um. <laughs> so you are you bringing a, a bag full of clothes with you, Marshall, when you go out on this trip? Yeah, I've been buying gear and stuff. I've been working on getting um everything I'm gonna need to kind of survive. I have like a um like a big rucksack that I'm gonna bring, and uh, I'm gonna have like some some like some clothes and sleeping bag and um some other gear and stuff to survive. Um, yeah, so I got a bike and I'm gonna have bags on the bike when I ride it around, and I might I'm gonna use the public transportation. I might just get like the monthly, um. Hey, monthly, I don't know. I haven't figured that out yet. But I'm going to just travel around, find places to sleep. I don't mind sleeping outside, but I'll probably try to access all the different shelters. And I already know because I, you know, I mean, I, I work in housing right now. So it's really hard to get into the shelters. There's a lot of barriers. Um, you know, like a lot of these these people in social service, like shelter places and things. Not all of them, but some of them can just be pretty... Um, they can be pretty cruel, you know, and they can dismiss you. I had a guy get kicked out in a snowstorm and we yeah, luckily were able to get him a um, hotel room. I felt terrible because they told me to send him there, you know? So, um, I just want to see, like, I want to see what it's like out there. I want to see what it's like for, for people to survive, you know, um, are the cards stacked against them, you know, is, or, you know, is it the, you know, is it the mental health a component? Like what's going on out there? I really want to be able, you know, to be like a freelance, um, not only kind of like journalist and, you know, kind of, um, you know, psychological investigator, but uh, be independent on my own, you know, like, cause we have, we like the, the state and all our tax dollars goes to these massive organizations who are tasked with solving these problems, but nobody's like, they're like, what's happening? Like, where's all the money going? Like, why is it the overdose is getting worse? You know, why do we have open air drug markets in Boston? You know what I mean? Why do we have like these tent cities that are popping up? Like what's really going on? I want I really want to get to the bottom of it and see what's going on. And I think this is the best way to do it. And, uh, you know, and I think we'll see. We'll see, I guess. How do you both feel about <clears throat> safe injection sites where somebody can go if they can't get into rehab, and, but but they can go somewhere and get their drug tested with see if there's fentanyl in it with fentanyl strips and whether it be a nurse on hand and and just like like you know if you've seen the Canadian one where eventually they get everybody into recovery but they instead of having shooting up in the back alley or in the ladies room at CVS or something you know uh, what is your opinion of that I uh for me personally I I, I agree I agree with it in the in the sense that you know, rather than being out there in a back alley on their own, getting high and you know potentially overdosing and no one being there to help them or no one that cares enough to help them, you know, I think it's a a safer alternative for right now. You know, it's in kind of meeting them where they're at and and you know kind of talking to them as much as possible and waiting until they're ready because you know it, you you can't you can't get clean until you are ready to do it for you. You're not going to do it for anybody else in the world. Uh, it just doesn't work that way. But yeah, I, I, I think it's a safe alternative. And I'd rather, I'd rather that than the, you know, them being out in the back alley, getting high on their own. And how do you feel about it, Marshall? 
So like we've dug into this a little bit and I think like a lot of like the policy that you see over here, especially like in Canada, it's trickled down into New York and it's coming up to us. It came from Portugal because Portugal ran like a 20, it's been like 20 years plus tester where like they had an open air drug market and like drugs were illegal. And as being a small country, it was just, they didn't have the resources to lock everybody up. So what they did was this, is they decriminalized drugs, which doesn't mean completely illegal, but you can legally have enough drugs that you're going to use for yourself. Now, like one of the things that we don't really understand is I think Portugal still has heroin. Whereas like we only have fentanyl over here and heroin is a completely different drug than fentanyl. So um, mm -hmm. it was really successful in Portugal. And the way that they treat a lot of like the drug, like opioid addiction is they have a van. It's a methadone van and it drives around and it stops at different places and people can get methadone every morning. Right. And then if people get sick of having to get the methadone van or whatever, like, you know, or if they're just sick of using, they can go, they'll help them get into treatment. It's like, it's, it's a very, um, it's a very kind of kind and considerate, um, you know, drug treatment, um, drug use uh, type of plan that they have over there. And it's been really successful. Whereas like, as far as like the, um, the safe injection sites that they have like now, cause the mass and cast is pretty much just like a, it's an open air drug market. You know, people are just using it right there in the street. So it already kind of exists. It's just, it's just monitored. I don't know how successful it would be with a, a hard drug like fentanyl. I think like if it was heroin, it would be a little bit different. Um, I think that's where a lot of confusion comes in. I think people are just keep getting heroin and fentanyl mixed up and confused. They're two completely different drugs. Um, you want to give them, um, you want to give the, the elevator, uh, the definition of the two and I, I have my I know what I feel because I I happen to watch a lot of a lot of shows on television about everything and I do a lot of reading so uh, but go ahead Demi give give us give the audience a, a difference between uh, heroin and fentanyl so heroin is an opiate and fentanyl is an opiate now fentanyl is a tiny little molecule fentanyl is a big fat I mean uh, heroin's a big fat molecule, right? So when like you use heroin, it's a little bit more difficult to overdose off of heroin and it lasts a lot longer. So you don't go into withdrawals quickly. Like if you use heroin, you can be high for like eight to 12 hours. You might not go into withdrawals for a day or longer. Fentanyl on the other hand is a tiny little molecule. It's an, actually, it's a, uh, it's an anesthetic. They use it, you know, anesthesiologists are paid upwards of $500,000 a year to keep people alive on the operating table. Um, it's extremely potent. It's like, you know, 10 to a hundred times more potent than heroin. Um, and it's a tiny little molecule. So the way it packs into the, like the, the, um, the endorphin receptors is, uh, just like a whole bunch of them get in there. And while your blood's flowing, like the blood will strip, like the, 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 uh, the tiny little molecules will come out. So a lot of times when people are using fentanyl, if the first dose wasn't enough to kill them, the second dose could possibly kill them, especially if they don't have a tolerance, right? Because they feel like they're coming down, but they take another shot of fentanyl and it just packs right into that receptor. And then like, you know, their, you know, central nervous system starts shutting down. You know what I mean? Their brain starts shutting down, their organs shut down and they asphyxiate. Like that's when, when people die from fentanyl or an opioid overdose, they asphyxiate because their lungs aren't working. No oxygen to the brain. The lungs don't work even more. And it's just like a, it's like a self-feeding loop. So um, fentanyl is just way more dangerous. It's way more deadly than, um, than heroin. So 
as long as we got fentanyl on our streets and people are addicted to it. Oh yeah. And then you go into withdrawal a lot quicker too. So it's like, you're only high for like 40 minutes. So you got to get high again. So therefore the withdrawal happens quicker. So if somebody doesn't use for a couple hours, they start going into withdrawals immediately and they start getting sick. So they either have to use or, you know, find some other form of opiate so that they're not going to be physically sick. I see. So yeah, on the show I was watching the other night about immigration, they was basically saying that fentanyl is a chemical and it's artificially, it's made with chemi- chemicals where heroin is made from the poppy seed and it's a plant. So it's, it's, that's the major difference. But the cartels are supposedly bringing in only fentanyl now because they can manufacture it and they don't have to worry about somebody coming and spraying their fields with, with, um, with flare guns, you know, and burning their fields up because all they have to do is have labs and just produce it that way. And, and it's way easier to bring it into the country because it's so small. That's what I was surprised. We had a druggist on two weeks ago and he was saying that uh, the amount of fentanyl, you could, you could hide in enough fentanyl under the seat of your car crossing the border to satisfy 100,000 people. In just a little package, you know, where if that was going to be heroin, you were going to need bales. So it's a big, big difference and easier for the cartels to do it. Um, so then how do you, how would you, you know, again, from your point of view, how would you, how would you deal with the cartels in Mexico? There's supposedly two major families and they're the ones that are bringing everything in. So how would, how would you deal with them? I think like, Anything you could do to get fentanyl off the street is worth it. You know, like, I don't know what this government's plans are. I don't know how they police other countries and police like these different, um, you know, legal drug um, cartels and, and stuff. But yeah, as long as like this fentanyl keeps coming in, like it's it's getting pressed into pills. It's getting pressed into like different types of pills like Xanax and Adderall and it's getting put in cocaine. You're right. Like it's in everything. So it's like. You just never know. The only thing I could say, like for safety's sake, you know, is like if the fentanyl is coming in here is if you're using other drugs besides fentanyl and you don't want to use that, have test strips, have fentanyl test strips. They got them at any harm reduction place. You can get them at CVS. You can get them at Walgreens. Pick up the test strips and just shave a little bit off that just a tiny little bit in some water. And you can test to see if there's fentanyl on it. You know, like you don't want to find out afterwards that you got an overdose dose of fentanyl in your Adderall pill or your cocaine line, you know what I mean? Because like, you know, nobody wants to die. So like, it's just wicked sad. Yeah. So a lot of people wonder how come somebody overdoses, they get knocked and they get sober again. I mean, they're, they're, they're back up, up and within two hours, they go right back to the same dealer, you know, and, and can you, Billy, I'll let you answer that one. What, what, what makes somebody do that? So it's a, it's a, it's a very sick thing. It's, uh, you know, it's, everyone hears that somebody OD, it's like the first question is, well, where did they get it? Who did they get it from? Because yeah. in their, in, in their mind, it's, it's the strongest stuff that they can get. And, and that, and that's, you know, I'll, that's what they want. That's what they're going for. It's, uh, yeah, it's just, it's a very, very sick thing. This, this, this disease is, is nothing nice, man. It, it's, it's a terrible disease and it, it really, really corrupts people and really ruins a lot of lives. Yes. So do they, do they, does the, the user never think about dying or do they, 
Um, I yeah. can tell you what one person told me once that he said that it's it's easier to die than it is to live. He said dying is easy. It's living that's hard. Very and, true word. <laughs> yeah, it's like, and unless you're an addict, it's tough to explain that to somebody that's, you know, the old hardcore guy that says just lock them up with, or, um, you know, just tell them to quit. You know, they they just don't get it. No, not at all. And it's and it, and it's it's sad that you know more people don't look into this and don't try to understand it from an addict's perspective. You know, because it's like you said, like no nobody wants most. I'm not gonna say nobody because, but most people, most addicts don't want to be out on Mass Ave sleeping on the street, you know, doing God knows what to get money for drugs or to get the drugs directly. You know, no, nobody wants to do that. You know what I mean? It's just, and, and, and if it, if you could just quit, if it was that easy, then we wouldn't have such a problem on our hands in this country. You know what I mean? It's just that the, the fact of the matter is it's, it's not that easy. It's a very difficult thing to do, you know, and you need a lot of support to do it. Like I couldn't have done this on my own. I've tried it many times to do it on my own. Oh, I got this figured out. I got, you know, and I fell on my face every single time and ended up in prison, you know, time and time again. Like, you know, I spent 20, 21 out of the last 26 years inside of prison because I just couldn't figure this stuff out. You know, it's and when just, I, like I said, when I came home, I'm sorry, go ahead. It's just about half your life. Yeah, absolutely. It's my, almost my entire adult life has been spent inside of prison. And it's, I'm, I'm learning and I, luckily, I've been able to learn fast and come around quick and learn how to live out here in society as a sober person, as a productive member of society. But I couldn't have done that without the support system that I have. My fiance, you know, guys like Marshall and Tommy, like they were huge in, in, in my success and in, in my ongoing success. You know, like my, my fiance, I, you know, I love her to death. She. I credit her 90% of why I am where I'm at today. Like this woman supported me in every way possible in the beginning because she believed in me and she, she knew that I, I was going to put in the work to, to make things better. And she supported me, you know, mentally, emotionally, physically. I mean, there was nothing that she didn't do. She went above and beyond. And, and I love her to death for that. And she's a big part of the reason that I'm here. And like I said, guys like Marshall and Tommy, and they give me, motivation to keep going like Marshall is somebody that I look up to I think I think Marshall's a, a, an amazing guy I think he's come a long way and he is he has set a path you know for, for guys like myself you know he's opening doors for me on, on a regular basis and he's pulling me into everything he's got going on you know and and, and I do I, I love Marshall for that I think he's an amazing guy and uh it's it's just been it's been amazing you know, almost two years that I've been home and, I, and I've, I've made a lot of accomplishments and I'm, I'm super proud of myself. And it took me a while to get to that point to be proud of myself and to, to believe that I deserve this stuff, you know, because I, I struggle with that, with, you know, the fact that I've OD'd five times and always came back. And I have friends that OD'd one time and never made it back, you know, so I've always asked that question, well, why me? Why am I here? And he's not, you know, and, uh, but I'm, I'm learning. I'm learning to get better at that. And I'm learning to accept that, that I, I do deserve this. I've put in the work for this. I've gone through hell to get here and, and I'm here now and, and there's no turning back. Well, must be good. You sit down and watch the Red Sox or the Celtics and 
Absolutely. Boy, this is this is the life. <laughs> Absolutely. Although the Celtics let me down, it was amazing to sit there and watch those games. Yes, it was very painful. I totally <laughs> agree with you. When to lose three games in a row to Miami, you know, and then to oh. lose the seventh game, you know. I know. You, you know, but history history has a funny way of repeating itself. No team yeah. has ever come back from being down three and zero, oh. and right. so the, the the Celtics continued the proof of that. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's much better to be worried about why did they train Mar- trade Marcus Smart versus versus where am um, I going to get my next fix? You I know? know it absolutely. You know, as we study in Buddhism, there's nothing that's everything is impermanent. So yeah. you know, it's nothing is going to stay the same forever. So we have to continue to accept and make our moves as we go along. That's um, important. You either one of you absolutely. guys te- teach meditation for for recovered people. I, I don't teach meditation. No, I've, I've gone to some myself and tried it out, but I personally don't teach meditation. No, I don't know about Marshall. <clears throat> I've, I've done a little bit of meditation for others. I'm Theravadan Buddhist. I studied it a lot when I was incarcerated. So like, that's been something that was life-saving for me. So like, yeah, it's just my, my meditation practice has been lacking Tony. So it's something I've been trying to pick up, you know, I got, um, a new girlfriend that's been trying to help me get into that. So it's, she's been on my case about it. Well, we have a Sangha group that meets on Sunday afternoons. If you ever want to join us, meets nice. at six o'clock on everything's on zoom. So it's very easy to do. And oh, send me the info. Yeah. Well, her and I will come then. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I'll look at I'll send, that. Definitely. I'm actually the facilitator this week. So uh, nice. you'll be, I'll, I'll get you the info. Okay. Right, awesome. Thank you. Yeah. So um, we're getting the note that we're just about out of time. But uh, Marshall, I want to wish you very good luck with um, with your your endeavors of being on the street. And um, I'm I'm not sure whether I want to see I want to see both. I want to see a, a big article in the Boston Globe magazine when you're done written by you. And I, I want to see I want to see a documentary on Netflix or on Prime Video, one or the other, doesn't matter, Hulu, you know, and the, the real life story, you know, so it's not like, uh, you know, the movie Dope Sick was a good, that was a good flick, but, and it tells a lot, but I want the, the, the real story with the real guy, you know, would be quite a, quite a, quite a thing to put out there. More, we need more education. We more, we still, we still have to attack the stigma, the stigma just, isn't getting in. It's getting a slight bit better, but <clears throat> only because there's so many parents out there who have lost a child. You know, and I say child from 20 to 40 years old. There's a lot of that, and that's that's where um, the education is coming. Unfortunately, I mean, Massachusetts alone, the last three years we've lost 6,500 people. So that means there's 6,500 parents or cousins or brothers and that are well aware of it. You know, I want to I want to thank you both for taking your time today. And you know, one, I know you're at work, Billy and Marshall. I think you're sweating away there in an unair conditioned car. Am I correct? Now there's there's a man yeah, of dedication. Yeah, that is correct. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, <laughs> they 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 tell you not to even let a dog stay in an unconditioned car. You know, so and Marshall's been doing it. And struggling through, and I really appreciate you uh, a lot. Um, you, you both years are walking the walk, and and you've, you've done your time, and now you're making good on it. And I really appreciate it. And you're very inspirational for those who have never been to prison. Right. Uh, 
but everything else, you're, you're right there. Good luck with your fiance and let me know when the wedding's going to be. Absolutely. It'll be next October. Next October. Okay. Next October. Um, yeah. We're going to go for, for the fall wedding. Yeah. But well, a little yeah. too soon. This October is a little bit too soon. Okay. Well, you're, you're, you're unspoken for our uncle. You know, I go as Uncle Tony on the Italian music hour on the station. So maybe your Uncle Tony will send you a wedding present. So um, please put me on your list. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Thank you. I All appreciate right. you for having me. All right. So we've been talking to William Coleman and Marshall Lane, and they're from, from Prison to Prosperity. And we really appreciate their time and, and all the work they've done to get to where they are today. And this is Uncle Tony, and this is The Courage to Hope. I want to thank you very much for listening.